Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to another episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Today I've got Nina Power on the show. We spoke at the Battle of Ideas, which was a fascinating event and she was one of the best speakers and I'm really, really privileged to have gotten the opportunity to have an hour-long interview with her in a separate room that we cordoned off for 4K video and audio interviews. Now, Nina Power is an English writer and philosopher. She's a senior editor of and columnist for the online magazine Compact. And to my chagrin, I found out halfway through talking to her that she's also a modern art critic because I was uh, in the midst of criticizing modern art, but not in the criticizing manner that she might criticize art, but just, just as a general snootiness on my part and an unwillingness to understand something like modern art because I well maybe I still think that it's all a load of rubbish that's just me maybe I whatever I'm a philistine let let that let that be known that I'm a philistine now um, Nina has some really fascinating and controversial ideas about men and women she wrote the book what do men want uh, where she went around finding out what men want Um, And she found a darkness in men. But she also defends, in this conversation, incels, that's involuntary celibates. She defends Russell Brand. Uh, That's another... And who else did she defend? I'm just trying to to think about who who else she defended. There was was a lot of defending uh, in this. Uh, Jordan Peterson, as well. And spoke about the origins of incel culture in chimpanzee politics. It's a move towards some intellectual but also gender-critical, controversial, polemic stuff that I'm trying to do. On the YouTube channel, I'm calling this Heretics. It's a new YouTube channel, completely separate to the old one, where I'm talking to people uh, like Nina Power, like Francis Foster from Trigonometry, like Graham Linehan, the writer of the IT crowd who's been cancelled for his gender-critical views. So it's more intellectual stuff. Heretics is the YouTube channel, but at the moment it's going on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold audio podcast as well with all the other stuff. And we'll see how that progresses. But do get hold of uh, What Do Men Want um, by Nina Power. As I say, lots of big episodes are coming up. But now you're on the edge of the differences between men and women with Nina Power. I've always been told I'm extremely lucky to be a white man. Is it as simple as that? Um, no, and and obviously this kind of identity nonsense, I think, is probably coming to an end, hopefully. I've been trying to say today uh, in a sort of discussion about um, the culture wars that actually people are making their own new culture. There is a kind of flourishing and a renaissance of people doing their own thing outside of existing institutions. Um, and I think there is sort of growing resistance to this kind of um, politics that would, you know, demonize you for... Uh, things that are in a way beyond your control and in fact you know the gift of god it's it's not your fault that you were born a white man you you exist uh we all exist and um 
you know, we should just try and get along. This sounds great. I feel fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for saying this. In writing What Do Men Want, you spoke to a lot of men about what they would speak about just among themselves. What kinds of things were you, did you learn anything that was like new to you? Not really. I mean, I think in the end, it's kind of complicated what I tried to do. So basically, I wrote a book that was actually very hopeful and aspirational and about how we do already get along um, and that there is a lot of compatibility. Um, and I didn't, I went down some dark routes to some degree, but I didn't want to go as dark as all that. And I think one of the things that men did say to me was that you have no idea how dark it is to be a man, which is kind of interesting. Dark and in what sense? I suppose in terms of like male desire in particular uh, yeah okay so they like <laughs> men did they, they didn't have to give you specifics as such i mean some people wanted to talk about it um I, I mean i spoke to some men who sort of had issues with pornography and you know sort of um various things to do with the kind of compulsive nature of male sexuality um which i think is maybe more of an issue for some men Mm. Um, Must vary, yeah. Yeah, you know, than others. But also I think there are kind of differences between men and women, which we can talk about in broad terms. Um, And I think male sexuality is often off limits for women, theoretically or conceptually, because there's a lot about it we don't necessarily want to understand. Okay, so what kind of things? Well, I think... Partly it might just be to do with things like um, a kind of greater desire for sex on the part of men who are at least, um, you know, libidinal. There are lots of men I spoke to who are old, like older who say they're very relieved that they no longer have to oh. think about it in the same way and they're not dominated by desire in the same way that they used to be. So obviously was, because the, the book is called What Do Men Want? And I was I was sort of mocking Freud because Freud famously says, he, what do women want? And mm. he says, I don't know. So obviously I say, I don't know as well. Um, but then I I was going through this idea of desire, right? So what is desire? Is desire different for men than for women? Um, so yeah, so that was one aspect of it, I suppose, the kind of um, almost demonic nature of male desire in some I, ways. I suppose, Yeah, I suppose there's an, a debate between uh, to what extent men are enthralled to their desires and there's just, just these victims of, you know, as Russell Brand might put it, to do with uh, he has a sex addiction. And then other people might say, look, we've all got wants and desires and needs. Can we control them? And, yeah. And so I guess maybe we fall somewhere, we should fall somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's not like women don't have problems too. And that, you know, we all have sort of negative tendencies as individuals and as members of, you know, d- <laughs> one of the two sexes. So I suppose, you know, one thing I'm trying to say is that we can all be slightly better. Um, we don't have to fall into this trap of blaming the other sex, you know, which is a temptation for both men and for women, right? So let's say you've had a bad relationship with a woman or a woman's had a bad relationship with a man. You know, the temptation to then generalize and say, well, all men are X, all mm. women are Y, you know, and then, then this has an effect on how you come to understand the world as such, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And we we kind of have to get along with each other, or at least it's better and more interesting if we try to do so, even though it's very difficult because human beings are very strange and awkward. <laughs> and tribal. And tribal, yes. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously... 
the relationship between men and women cuts across tribe in some ways, right? Like, you know, you could say, well, women are one tribe and men are another. But at the same time, we live in this completely mixed world in which we work together, live together. You know, we necessarily confront each other. We don't live in a sex segregated society, particularly not in the modern world. Mm. You know, we're kind of around each other all the time. And I think one of the things that's kind of causing a problem that's generating a lot of antagonism is this proximity. You know, the fact that men and women are together <laughs> almost too much, you know what I mean? And, and that we don't have an, an, sometimes enough time with members of the same sex, you know, women together and men together, mm. which I think a lot of um, both men and women would like more of, if you see what I mean. That's really interesting. Um, I think um, men, men I, it's, it's such a weird, it's a weird thing because there's no other minorities, I suppose, where we're biologically if we talk about hard, our, our hardware rather than our software, like where our hardware is different, at least we don't, I don't know how much, I don't want to go into eugenics and things like that, but all <laughs> the minorities of people, we're, so, we're the same, we all bleed, we all whatever. Uh, but men and women are biologically different and we don't really talk about that much. Are, are, there, are there key differences between men and women? Yeah, I mean, very much so. And I think, you know, the modern world sort of creates this illusion or this fantasy that they're not that important or that we can kind of overcome them in the name of like formal equality, for example, or the fact that we're all economic agents, we're all moral beings. You know, there's many things that we share. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, when we go past a certain point and we say, oh, these differences don't matter or we can pretend that they don't exist or we can use language in order to sort of deny their reality or we can change sex, you know, that's when we're in a kind of of, you know, very uh, crazy making space, in fact. And I think with the language question, you, we've seen a lot of attacks on the use of language that is specific to women in particular, like, you know, use of the word mother, female, woman, and so on. And, and this is like really mind-bending if you're a woman. <laughs> I bet. You know, it's it's been a very, very strange few years. The idea that like woman is just this floating word that men can take and use. Um, but women themselves are not allowed to talk about being women, you know, and it, you know, maybe that's an exaggeration, but I don't think so. There, there is something about this overly linguistic culture that has removed us from our embodiment uh, in the name of desire. Like, so someone wants to say a man wants to be seen as a woman, that his desire is more important, mm. let's say, for some reason, than women's desire to have their own language and preserve their own reality and talk about their own existences. You know what I mean? Mm. So... Yeah, there is a kind of war going on. <laughs> yeah, well, this, that's interesting because I think that does get lost a lot of the time. With the trans debate, a lot of it tends to be about children, you know, rightly so, children shouldn't be doing this to themselves. It's a decision that's you're too young to make. Um, it changes truth and all these things, but it doesn't, we don't talk enough, I don't think, about what it does to women uh, and their, their autonomy. I blame Judith Butler. Um, and Judith Butler... And for those who don't know, she was a gender theory that maybe the, the sort of the leading one of the leading figures back in the day. And she was all about there isn't any difference. If I'm reading her right, I don't know biologically between men and women. It's only socially constructed. But then in recent years, seems to have done a U-turn to align herself with some of the trans ideology. Uh, well, no, or not? <laughs> no, I mean, yes, sort of. I mean, she's still a gender theorist in the sense that she's talking about gender is performative. So. And 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 that there is no kind of sex that it, we can refer to as this kind of natural, you know, foundation. If you see what I mean, so mm. everything becomes performative. I guess is what you know one way of re understanding gender trouble or the final part of that book. Um, her ideas have been taken up, but they've been really quite exaggerated. And it's she hasn't um, tried to argue against 
that either. So, I mean, I regard her as a kind of traitor to women, to be honest. Um, she hasn't argued against what? <laughs> the, the take up of her ideas and the extension of them into trans ideology. Right. So yeah. so she's sort of seemingly happy to go along with that. And she, she often calls feminists fascists and things like this, which is really unhelpful and inaccurate, you know, and there's nothing, there's nothing fascistic about saying like women exist and sex matters in some context, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this channel- Really not fascist. We, we deal with like cults, a lot, a lot of cults and things like that. And I was thinking yeah. the other day about, you know, Scientology, they call their enemies suppressive persons. Uh, Jehovah's Witness will talk about worldly people and they all have these different apostates in certain religions as well, these sort of horrible, bad people or whatever. And in the trans debate, it's feminists. And it's if your enemy, if the sort of the bogeyman of your ideology is feminism, it feels like that you you can't be on a progressive side. Well, I think whether what pro progressive means is up for debate, sure. to be honest. But um, yeah, I think how how to put this? I think human beings are very cult like. It's very easy for human beings to fall into cults of some kind or another. And I think maybe in my darker moments, I think all we can do is pick a good cult. Do you know what I mean? Or some, pick many cults. Some cults are better than others. Yeah, I mean, liberalism is a kind of pluralism mm. in a way. Like you could say it's a plurality of cults or a toleration of different cults with the, uh, with the aim that they don't um, interfere with one another too much. Mm -hmm. You know, the freedom mm -hmm. of belief, freedom of expression, up to the point at which you kind of get in someone else's way. Uh, I think, though, in the absence of religion, we've ended up with things that have religious qualities but don't understand themselves to be religions. So, you know, if you're on the left and you are sort of expelled for wrong think, then you're basically a heretic. And, you know, it, the same kind of puritanical fanaticism we see in some of the kind of, you know, trans ideology, like trans women are women, you know, complete with mantras and, you know, kind of really sort of fixated thought, a lack of flexibility, a lack of ability to have a conversation, to engage in negotiation and dialogue, which is what all mature people have to do with themselves and with others. And politics in a way is, I suppose, the art of making people the least unhappy do you know what I mean? Like yeah. nobody can get everything they want. <laughs> Eight billion people in the world. Right. It's impossible. Well, look, and, and it's different because it, if you, I think what you're saying about it's not acknowledging that it's a religion, I think that's really interesting because at least when you leave Scientology, if you're excommunicated, it's, it's incredibly painful. Like it's one of the most painful things that can happen. You can't speak to your family, your friends. You don't know anything about the outside world. Hasidic Judaism, the same thing. You move out, you don't even speak the language if you're in Brooklyn or something. You, you've grown up speaking Yiddish. What a difficult thing that is. But at least for Scientology, apart from 30,000 Scientologists, everybody else is like, hey, come in, I'm going to embrace you. Where, whereas because this sort of leftist gender thing going on doesn't admit that it's a religion, yeah. you come out and you're excommunicated and you don't really have anywhere to turn. Yes, I think that's sort of increasingly the case. And the left I used to be a part of was not like that. It was, had the idea that, for example, if someone was saying something kind of reactionary or you disagreed with about immigration or whatever, the idea would be to like meet people where they were, mm. right? And that you would discuss things and you would try to give a better explanation. You'd say, oh, actually it's capital that's pitting you against each other as workers, you mm. know what I mean? Mm. Um, but you wouldn't shun the person because they said something racist or whatever. Like that, the old left would never do that. The new left or whatever it is definitely does that. It completely ostracizes people who don't 
share all of the correct beliefs. Um, and in that sense, is kind of authoritarian and, you know, uh, unable to to engage in dialogue. And then it becomes cult-like, you know, and, and I think it's actually a death cult, to be honest. Um, <laughs> in what sense is it a death cult? Well, okay. So, I mean, you know, we all have a sort of choice to make as to whether we basically celebrate life or we don't. And I think the left is very tied up um, with guilt you know, that you started your question with, well, I'm a white man, you know, how should I feel or how, how do you feel about me or something like that? I think if you're a, a white leftist, you, especially if you've got a job or something, then the whole thing is you're supposed to feel incredibly guilty for your privilege, you're an oppressor, you know, you've got this kind of binary black and white way of thinking in which you're either on the side of the good or you're bad. You know, it's it's very borderline personality disorder type way of thinking. You know, everyone is either good or bad. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like when you look at countries like Canada and you look at their kind of state mandated or state sponsored suicide program, you basically got a state saying, you know, your nihilism can be met in our arms and we'll kill you. You know what I mean? Which is basically eugenics. Um, mm. And I think this kind of liberal culture or part of liberal culture has ended up basically worshipping and celebrating death. You know, it's turned against the family. It's turned against people enjoying themselves, you know. Mm. We have population crisis now. <laughs> yeah, people getting along, that's bad. You know, you should be suffering because there's someone in the world who's in a worse state than you. And how dare you, you know, eat an ice cream or something, mm. you, you fascist. That was one of the first times where I think I fully realised a few years ago that there are to almost everything, two sides. And I, I really like what you're saying about it's just making everybody as not unhappy as they can be and sort of trying to get along. Because I didn't even think about what, I, I think my liberal instincts, I suppose, used to think, oh, that's a great idea. If you don't want to be on this planet anymore, why should you have to be here, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't think about what that law might do in terms of like pushing people uh, when their families and maybe they feel like they're a burden on their family and that kind of thing. And that's when you go, oh, okay, everything has another side to it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, been lost. Um, tell me a little bit about what well, I get called in the comments quite often. People are saying you're a beta something, you're a simp, uh, you're this, you're that. What 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 are these words? Where are they coming from? Um, okay, so as far as I understand some of the alpha beta stuff, I mean it definitely got picked up in the manosphere, but it was based on a kind of like misreading of chimpanzee analysis. <laughs> So, and obviously as human beings, from an evolutionary point of view, we're sort of somewhere between chimps and bonobos. Right. Um, so I think Franz Deval talks about this. He he used the idea of the alpha and the beta, and you know, you can think about it in terms of chimpanzee politics and you know, other higher apes, um, where you have sort of forms of domination and 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 territory and so on. Um, I suppose in the human discourse, it's um <laughs> You know, yeah, the alpha is is supposedly some kind of dominant male, but I mean, I talk about this in the the book. I mean, it's actually kind of complicated to point to what that would mean in the modern world because, in some sense, the most alpha men are the ones in prison because they're the ones who are the most violent and not able to con contain their violence. If you mm. see what I mean, they're not able to deploy it in a, a judgment, you know, judgmental, positively judgmental way, right? So you could say, well, okay, well, there's some alpha men who are the most violent. They're the strongest men or they're the most violent men. There are alpha men who are like the richest men, but they don't tend to necessarily be the most physically strong. So actually, when mm. we talk about alpha men, it's not 
clear at all to whom we refer. You know, we, we're also kind of governed, we're in the era of the nerd and like, you know, the kind of computer guy who is not sort of historically the hero, if you see what I mean, that type of person. I guess a simp, as far as I understand it, is a man who will, who will speak to women in a not um, rude way, potentially. Right. You I know. should be ruder. Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, if you want to impress some sort of, I do some men who who <laughs> think that you should be like blaming women for all the ills of the world or something like that. It's attractive. It's an appealing proposition. I do find it crazy. I, I always want to reply because they're saying these things, and I think, but you're a really angry person who's a troll who's anonymous in a comment section, and I'm a guy with a YouTube channel and all these things, and you're on my channel. So surely, but then I think if I reply that, then I've gone down to their level. So I just leave it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think how, how, how to put this, um, if you're happy in yourself, it doesn't matter what they mm. say. I mean, but this is a tough lesson to learn. I mean, as someone who's been attacked <laughs> millions of times and millions yeah. of people, you sort of get used to it after a while, I suppose. And you're just like, you know. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. You get used to it, but don't you always 
especially when you feel like you've been mischaracterized, you, you've got that urge to respond. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree, but I think we all have to kind of carry on, just say what we think. And I don't know. I mean, yes, maybe with our friends, like to try to give an account of ourselves, but it's basically impossible to give an account of yourself to everyone. And especially to those people who don't actually want you to give a good yeah. account of yourself. That's yeah. not what they're doing. Yeah, It's a form of enjoyment. If you think about everything as a form of enjoyment, even if people are pretending it's not, then, you know, anonymous person sort of being mean about you is is them enjoying themselves. Do you know what I mean? I'll it's it's actually nothing to do with you. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. It's like, they and they know how to get you because they'll do those ones where they really misinterpret what you said. Because if it's just someone saying, you piece of whatever, it's just like, all right, I don't even need to engage with that. But when they're saying, oh, so you think this, do you? And then you're like, I'm going to reply but just to this one I'm saying to my fiance just like I'll, I'll be in bed in a minute and just one more and it's yes. rude what am I doing what are to people who don't know what are incels uh, okay so this is a sort of abbreviated term for involuntary celibate is actually coined by a woman hmm. um, to describe a period in her life when she was um, you know not having a sexual relationship with somebody with a man and it sort of got it, like the alpha beta thing got taken up and used in a particular way mm. um it i've actually written a defensive incel culture um for the spectator a while back um insofar as i think it's in a kind of tradition of german romanticism and and werther and these kind of um solitary young men this kind of um this melancholic kind of poetic uh type of young men i think Incels has become the name for a group of men that you are allowed to demonize. So they tend to be kind of young working class men. Mm. There's a very good um, documentary by Alex Lee Moyer um, called TFW No GF, that feeling when no girlfriend, when she interviews various um, young men who are involved in the kind of on online, they wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as incels, but they probably would be characterized that way, who use 4chan and make memes. And, you know, this is a few years back. Um, and really what is revealed is that, you know, a lot of these young men are are basically stranded in in towns with no money, like difficult to find a job, you know, that they've found a sense of community actually by, you know, engaging in this kind of humor online. Um, yeah. And I think we, anytime any group is sort of demonized, yeah. we have to be very on guard, you know, whether it's feminists, whether it's trans people, whether it's incels, whether it's white men, you know, because this is a tactic to divide us all the time and to to make us think that there isn't, uh, you know, shared um, humanity among us, you know. So when we're talking about difference, like sexual difference, yes, that's real, right? But that doesn't mean that men and women can't get along. In fact, it's one of the reasons we can get along. Mm. So where we draw the lines are very, you know, they have to be a matter of public discussion, if you see what I mean. Like what, which differences are good, if you like, and which differences are imposed and divisive and artificial. Hmm. I suppose there are parts of the incel community which which are acceptable and it's uh I, I can't find a girlfriend. And they've got they've got gripes, they've got concerns that are that are we should listen to. And then there are parts that are like with any community that are pretty, pretty extreme. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes there's also a fantasy of an imagined community, like, you know, it's a young man wanting a girlfriend and chatting to other random anonymous men online is not necessarily a member of a community, if you see what I mean. Mm. It's somebody who's bored like we all are sometimes and is online. And, you know, we're often too quick to put people in groups and say, oh, well, you believe all of these things because you're one of those or something like that. 
Um, and I think, you know, wanting to have a girlfriend is not um, an incomprehensible feeling. I mean, most people do want to be loved and admired and respected and understood. I think the the complexity comes in when, again, we get this blaming idea or the idea that, oh, I need to have something or I deserve something. You know, this is why I actually defend Jordan Peterson in the book, because I say, well, actually what he says is, you know, you can't just demand and, and deserve these things, right? Actually, the best thing to do in the first place is to like look at your own life and take yourself in hand and tidy your room and, you know, get fit and look after yourself so that you're better able to, you know, be with others and look after them. Mm. Um, and this is the opposite of that kind of idea that, oh, I deserve X, Y, just because. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I was about that was my next question about Jordan Peterson actually, because um, he he is somebody who uh, is a divisive figure, rightly or wrongly, and a lot of people I think haven't really listened to him. I, I do think just personally, and I don't want to offend him because I'd love to get him on the podcast at some point. Some of his tweets un, are unnecessary, and they tend to be about politics and things like that. But on psychology, whenever he's spoken, I've just thought, wow. And the way he speaks is quite is, is brilliant. And I think I showed a friend of mine who's who's quite wrapped up in a lot of the progressive side of things. Um, I spoke to her and she was saying, oh, you know, oh, he's just a bigot, isn't he? Or something like that. And I showed her that clip with Piers Morgan when Jordan Peterson starts crying. He does cry quite often, which I think is nice to show that men can cry. I think that's fine. Um, just thinking about some of the lonely men, just thinking about lonely men made him that sad that he cried publicly. And I just thought someone who cares that much sh shouldn't, as you say, shouldn't be demonized. And he did say exactly what you've just said. He said, he did say, uh, you know, women can women can choose who they want and they, they should choose high. They should have high standards. Why shouldn't they? They should do exactly that. And men should also, you know, try and meet those expectations, do all they can to do that, which I, I imagine some people would not expect Jordan Peterson to say. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, we can all be better. It's not like women are great either. You know, like we're both potentially awful, right? Yeah, yeah. We both potentially have awful habits or yeah. manners. You, you and or me or men and, men and women. Well, you, you, me, yeah. Michael. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you about <laughs> Michael, the producer. Women, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, we're all just here. You know, we, we all have potentially negative <laughs> tendencies and habits. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I think the more realistic and mature and human thing to do is to recognize that um, and to try to work things out sort of together and, and to be slightly better, which is about all we can manage, apparently. But we can make decisions that are better than others. Do you know what I mean? Like, not everything is the same. Yeah. No, I I think so. And I, I love this idea of like, improve yourself, make your bed, you know, you got to get your bed going, make, like, make your life good before lecturing others and because I mean that I mean we can't ignore it. I I I appreciate we have to show both sides of the incels and uh, that there is there is a nicer side to it. But there's also a lot of toxicity. I've I've seen some of what, what's called shit posting, I suppose, in those incel communities. The way that women are blamed, and that does sometimes go into that sort of victimhood cycle of oh well, you know, they're all against me. This kind of thing. But yeah, but I think we have to understand also like the role of humour, and I think maybe being slightly mm. older, like you know, growing up in the nineties. Humor was really a, a fantastic mechanism for mocking everything, including yourself. And, you know, and there's a kind of levity that comes from using humor that avoids some of the kind of darkness. So even if the humor itself is very dark and very mean sounding and potentially offensive, like it's actually better that that exists than that people repress it. Mm. 
very difficult balance to strike you know it's and and if some people don't have a sense of humor you can't really tell them no. to, to have one because <laughs> they just don't yeah i appreciate it so do you think that it is all that or, or is or some of it not humor does it go beyond that I th look i think in you know human beings are going to express a variety of things like the internet is just this site of like libidinal free-for-all you know if you're an anon and no one's going to track your address you can write whatever you want it's like the id is speaking yeah. you know we've created this sort of enormous platform for you know anyone to say anything whether they mean it or not right um sure there are going to be some horrible things there are going to be things that sound threatening and you know people have posted um you know videos of them killing people or you know like that this is a thing that exists because this is humanity in extremis you know like almost everything is online almost everyone's online people do extreme things men especially you know all extremes of behavior really are done by men you know that's that's how it is you know the most amazing things and the most awful things but surely when it, when it's done in a sort of communal way we can we can criticize that and hope to change it yeah but again you know the looseness of some of these communities i mean you know signing up and writing anonymously on a forum doesn't necessarily make you a member of a community right mm. and i think these distributed networks or whatever you want to say it's like they become objects of study you know or objects of derision or objects of you know media attention but often you're creating an artificial unity where there isn't necessarily one there. You've got like a load of teenagers in different countries writing stupid things on the internet. Do you know what I mean? That's true. That's true. I guess some people link them to some of the extreme sort of acts of, is it, what do you, would you call it, terrorism? Or? Sure. But that would be like saying, you know, all feminists are like Valerie Solanis, you know? Who's that? Oh, she was the woman who shot Andy Warhol. Oh, wow. She wrote the Scum Manifesto. Which is That's a very interesting. That's a whole story I know nothing about. Okay, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, she's she's one of the rare women who sort of committed violence. Um, you know, and most likely because Andy Warhol stole her screenplay, or so she claimed, um, wow. and didn't give it back to her. But wow. you know, but she she wrote the Scum Manifesto, which is a sort of very extreme kind of feminist document in a way, although she wasn't particularly tied to feminist movement. But it would be like saying you know, all feminism is violent because this one woman did this violent act. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I understand that. Um, and with reference to the purity cycle, which I heard you talk about with Chris Williamson, are some progressives causing more harm by just presuming Peterson is bad and evil without engaging with his material? Well, I think, you know, there's, again, to go back to this black and white borderline, you know, cluster B thing, you know, I think Chris Rufo has been talking about this lately. Like, you know, we liberalism has un unfortunately and paradoxically or maybe inevitably permitted in its pluralism and its toleration the rise and emergence of people with serious psychopathological problems to take over institutions right so because people who are sort of even-handed and reasonable and open-minded are going to lose out in certain situations when you have people who are very loud and very kind of authoritarian and very scary because a lot of people are very afraid and they don't want to lose their job and they don't want to stand up to bullies. But if nobody does, then you have institutions that are dominated by these character types. Yeah. And this is where we're at. So the purity spiral, I think, yeah, because the left has become a sort of black and white cult in many ways in which there are good people in group, good people and bad outgroup people who are heretics or, you know, and they're people that you're allowed to hate. So if you're a good leftist, hate is bad. So other people hate, but if they hate, you're allowed to hate them. So you have 
the most pure, wonderful, good reason for hating people because they are the haters. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So you permit yourself this, Aldous Huxley talks about this, mm. you know, this kind of righteous joy in hating the right people. Do you know what I mean? And you can pretend to yourself there's not actually hate because you're not a hateful person. You're a good person. I suppose like all or almost all hate comes from that. You you first convince yourself, you know, you give yourself a bunch of morals. This is where I stand. Those are the bad people. I get to hate them. And yeah. it feels like whenever there's been an opportunity in history for that to happen, it has happened. That humans have, if there's, if you happen to live in a society and age where black people are perceived as expendable, you will make them into slaves and just treat them as such. And it will feel moral to you to do so. If you live in an age where you consider the Jews to have more money, which is now more power in some ways, despite uh, evidence to the contrary or whatever, and it's subjective, but you consider that to be the case, you will, you can hate them. Uh, if you think somebody has gender critical views, right, that's your outgroup, you can hate, which is quite hateful. Yes. And I think that basically, you know, Freud talks about hate actually coming before love and hate not being the opposite of love because, and hate is a necessary feature of our development. Because if you think about it, when you're growing up and you're sort of individuating yourself, you have to push others away. So, you know, when children say, young children say, I hate you, mummy, mm. right? In a way, they're also kind of establishing their own identity. So hate is a necessary feature. We don't understand what hate is. You know, mm. we have all this legislation or oh, hate speech, so on, but we don't actually understand what it is. And this is a problem because we actually have to understand that it is kind of a necessary feature of our development. Wow. And even the people we love, we sometimes feel ambivalent towards, right? Like your fiance, my fiance, our friends, mm. you know, we love them. We love our family. We love our friends. But at times we can also feel quite ambivalent towards them. And these dif- these feelings are very difficult to integrate, especially in a culture that says, no, you either are a good person or a bad person, because nobody wants to say, oh, look at the darkness inside me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've, even though we all have it. I've definitely noticed uh, relationships, not just my fiance, but friends and family and stuff. They've been moments where if we weren't getting on with one another we start to see a really different person and I remember a particular moment when I I looked at somebody and I just thought why did they do they would never that's not who they are why did they do that horrible thing to me and I had to really think for a while like that's just not them that's not who that person I know that but I know that person for years and it took me realizing it was this cycle that's gone on for years where we've both pushed each other and got meaner and meaner and the empathy's dried up. And isn't it amazing how conditional that empathy and and love and hatred and all that, it's just so conditional. That's scary. Yeah, it is scary, but I think the mature position or the mature approach is to understand. I mean, this is why religions like Christianity, by the way, have survived so long because they basically say things like this from the start. You know, we're riven, we're split subjects, we're a combination of good and bad in all of us. We're all capable of doing harm, we're all capable of doing good. You know, forgive us this day our daily trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, if you see what I mean. Lead us not into temptation. We're all prone to addiction, bad behavior. You know what I mean? Like like mm. the religions that have survived are the ones that have recognized the reality of human nature mm. in this way. There is still competitive virtue though in in Christianity. Uh, oh, Judaism. no doubt, no doubt. We're still human. I mean, that's the point. And and you know, Christianity says, look, we, you know, <laughs> humility is very helpful because actually, you you do end up in hubristic, arrogant modes of behaviour, including to do with faith. You know, mm. we're always going to be this kind of broken um, being, if you like, and all we can do is sort of try to be slightly better and and make amends, apologise where we've done something wrong, recognise that we've also caused harm. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's all about how you interpret it, isn't it? Because I think some people will just 
interpret it and, and use that as we were saying before i think with non-religious ideas use it as a shield to uh, of, of virtue to do do as you please uh i'm thinking of like of judaism in particular extreme hasidic judaism they've got uh, something called sneus which is modesty uh you know wearing long dresses long you know uh, a wig a shaitel i think it's called a shaitel uh and all sorts of things like that and you end up competing with other people for who's got the long who's got the most modesty almost the opposite of some of the modern culture you know especially you know people going out to nightclubs and things like that today short dresses and things it's then the long dresses and and i've asked some people who've left that community and they say god it really did become it consumed me and i thought i was just being so virtuous and and i guess that again it's the human condition yeah absolutely i mean scrupulosity is a form of ocd that has religious components and i think you know if you read rene girard and when he talks about mimetic rivalry you know, our desire to go back to the desire point comes from seeing what other people desire. So we're basically always in a kind of competition, envy, rivalry with everyone around us, no matter how um, individuated we think we are and how we think for ourselves and we know what we want and we were interested in this, right? We're massively influenced by everyone around us, like whether we're in a small community or a large global one. Like we we constantly try to understand what it is that other people seem to want. If you think about the hipster, the hipster is no less part of a community. He or she is constantly trying to uh, mm. navigate or negotiate what's cool. You know, the values and, and, and so on that are attached to communities might be different superficially, but in an anthropological way, they're all the same. Mm. You know? I, I wonder if some have more substance than others. I, I'm thinking yeah. of like modern art, right? I, I hope you're not a modern art fan. I know there'd be a lot of modern art fans <laughs> listening and watching, but I'm convinced that that is one place where almost like a multi-level marketing thing where the value is just how much you value something and whoever joins then gets Well, to- I mean, to, to, to be fair, I'm an art critic, so I, oh, I no. do have, no, it's fine, <laughs> uh, <laughs> amongst other things. Yeah. No, no, I, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the tricky things that people have when it comes to aesthetics is precisely coming to understand their own feeling about something, right? Because it's very, very difficult, right? The art market, yes, depends a lot upon a kind of almost Ponzi scheme of what is perceived mm. to be desirable. How do you make something worth something? You know, a lot of it is kind of gambling from yeah. collectors and so on, right? Which has nothing to do with aesthetic value necessarily, right? But I wouldn't it, therefore damn all modern art. There, is, there isn't such a thing as modern art, if but you see what I mean. Every modern art museum, they <laughs> always have this. It's almost like the trick, like going out at the end of a roller coaster and you get to see the photo and the souvenirs. Like everyone I've been to has got a black square as mm-hmm. the art thing. And it's always got people watching it, looking at it going, what the hell? And they're sort of whispering, going, this is nonsense. And I wonder if that's, what the, I guess you could say that's the point. It gets people talking. Well, I, I think, yeah, you'd have to be really precise about which. <laughs> but uh, the I mean, Tate in we? Cornwall. Huh? The, the Tate Modern in Cornwall. Yeah. Black Square. Yeah, Malevich. Is, is that right? Yeah, but oh. the Black Square is from yeah. like 1915, I think. Is it? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting actually in the 2020, I was just writing about this, you know, the Black Square then got resurrected as solidarity with BLM, you know. So actually the Black, Black Square right. is a very interesting Object. I suppose so. Yeah. I, look again. That's. <laughs> I, I've got to be cynical about things, don't I? I've just. You know. Sometimes. Why? Why do? You? Um. Because hate is an important part of humanity. <laughs> I don't know. Cynicism I've just learned that. <laughs> I've learned. But it is. Don't you agree? I walked around feeling hateful in my in the modern <laughs> in the modern art of yeah. all things. Look, if I got but to hate somebody, that's a reaction. No, yeah. But you know, to to be to be sort of true to your own intuitions and your own feelings, right? Rather than seeking to repress them. Mm. You know, it, that would be, that's more authentic, right? Yeah. I must admit they are misguided and ignorant feelings, but they are feelings nonetheless. 
Um, would Russell Brand be an alpha male? Is is he an example of of of, of bad? Uh, people people use the word toxic masculinity. So I can ask you too. What is toxic masculinity? What you know? And is Russell Brand an example of that? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think you know there is toxic masculinity. If if there is, then there's toxic femininity too. I mean, these are just aspects of our sexual difference that are played out in extremists. So you know, women would be it would be stuff like reputational damage, you know, gossip, whatever, like bitchiness. Um, might be forms of toxic femininity. Um, I yeah, Russell Brand's an interesting one. I mean, I think people tried to take him down recently, largely because his political views appear to have shifted, and he's no longer part of the in group. Mm. So I think a lot of it is a kind of scapegoating, actually. Um, but that can be true, and he also did a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, sure. I I I've no doubt that he was um an well he he was self confessedly a kind of libertine who took advantage, especially at that time. You know, the 90s were very hedonistic. You know, people took a lot of drugs and drank a lot and had a lot of sex. And it there was it was sort of encouraged. Like, that was the culture. And this is the thing. It's like you, everyone's like a fish in water. You can't see the water, like the culture you're in. You just think it's normal. So in the 90s, rightly or wrongly, it was generally encouraged and thought to be cool to behave like this. Yeah. You know, and this is before the sort of surveillance culture of the internet and the idea that you could record everything and, you know, people still being, you know what I mean? It, it was a different moment, even though it's not that long ago. And this is not to say anything uh, judgmental about the behavior or otherwise, but rather just to explain the context. Um, and there were people at the time who were opposed to it as well, not just religious people, but people, you know, maybe thinking this is rather um, permissive towards men who behave in a caddish way. And I think we have to say that the sexual revolution has largely encouraged a cad <laughs> as a character type. You know, like, what does it mean to have sex without consequences? That's really what the sexual revolution promised. Who benefits from that? Well, it's not really women and children, is it? It's a certain kind of man who can sort of live without consequences. Um, and I think Russell Brand said explicitly, like, um, you know, I'm a working class man. I'm going to sort of get my end away as much as I can. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I've won yeah. the lottery, the sexual lottery. Yeah. You know, he's sort of charming or whatever. And, you know, lots of women sort of fell for that. He was famous, you know. So I look, I, I don't know whether he sort of did some terrible things. Maybe he did. Um, but I think, you know, that this it was very strange, that sort of two week period of like, hate, you know, the the, the two-week hate <laughs> towards Russell Brand. And he just ignored it. That was quite interesting, wasn't it? He must be the one person who benefited most from a war between Israel and Hamas. I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting Russell Brand started that <laughs> war, but uh, it, it's taken the heat off him, just as Russell took the heat off Dan Wooten and Dan Wooten took the heat off uh, Hugh Edwards. You know, that's, that's the news cycle. Good day to bury bad news or whatever it was after September 11th. Um, and I have sympathy with what you're saying, actually, because I, and I do think we forget instantly that we lived in an entirely different world 10 years ago. I, I always I refer to Ricky Gervais says, you know, no one could have known 10 years ago that today the most offensive thing you could possibly say on Twitter is women don't have penises. So yeah. who knows what the next thing in 10 years is going to be. And we do make people as well. So we sort of did make Russell into a into this libertine, as you say. We did sort of, we, we clapped and laughed and 
I don't think we we can now say, oh, we didn't know he was secretly doing that. I think most people most people did. I don't think he was secretly doing anything. And I think you know, for example, people were sort of criticizing him for having sex with a sixteen year old girl. If that was the case, you know. But if you're a sixteen year old girl in the nineties, having sex with Russell Brand would be like you know, the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, we've and- got to guide 16-year-olds, don't we? To hey? an extent. We've got to guide 16-year-olds to an extent and say, look, what you think you want now, whether well, it be having sex with us Sure, but or- maybe 16 meant something slightly different in the 90s. I mean, we definitely thought we had sexual agency as teenagers in the mm. night. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, rightly or wrongly, you feel more mature than maybe you are. I mean, it doesn't mean mm. that men should take advantage of it, but... You can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, well, people have sexual autonomy and the, you know, the right to have sex at 16 and then be like, oh, no, but not like that. Mm. You know, either either you do or you don't. That's true. That's true. I, I still think you can criticize him without ne- without him necessarily having broken the law. I, 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 I feel like 16 is when you're in your 30s. I think the power imbalance is just too much. Right. But what I'm saying is that there's a power also in being young and attractive and going having sex with an older guy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's I haven't you, done it recently. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's like, you know what I mean? It's um it's you know, I think we've we we're in this very uneasy moment, maybe we always are, but where we don't quite know where to place power. You know, either some people have it or they don't. We don't really know what it is. You know, I mean, a beautiful young woman has lots of power, right? In some ways, she has the power to attract and seduce and manipulate and crush men's hearts and so on. But at the same time, you know, if we're looking at it purely in terms of, oh, but he's older, he's richer, so on, right? That's a different model of power, right? But both can be true. You know, both exist. Yeah, yeah. Actually, no. I, I definitely see what you mean. I, I, I get that as well. I get. I, for me, sixteen is just. You know, it, why isn't it eighteen? Like every, most other countries. I know it's not true that it's most other countries. I is think. It not? I mean, France. It was about. It was very young until. <laughs> Seven. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the problem is you, you hit sort of reality. You know, teenagers do tend to be very um, horny mm. and. You know, I I kept all my teenage diaries and I wouldn't have thought I was particularly exceptional, but they are extraordinary, reading them back, just how obsessive they are in terms of like, oh, this boy flirting with this person. You, <laughs> you know, should publish those next. God, they're really boring, but um, <laughs> surprisingly boring, actually. <laughs> I was sad. But, you know, what what's really revealing is is just how, how that kind of sexual feeling is so dominant. And I think that's, you know, if you think about school, if you go to co-ed schools, the thing is, if we want to stop that, we have to actually do serious, uh, make serious changes to our culture as a whole. We basically have to segregate young men and women. We have to put them in sex single sex schools we have to do all the things that people used to do in fact we have to have then rituals you have to have dances in which mm. you bring them together occasionally or chaperones that was my childhood i, I went to a single <laughs> a single sex school and uh, it was ex- it was fine for me maybe that's why i have old-fashioned ideas or something about it yeah i mean i'm not even saying they're bad i mean i think mm. to be honest probably young men and women would get a lot more done if they were kept apart i actually don't necessarily think it's a good idea to have teenagers when yeah. i had acne and stuff the lot i was like i went into school breathing a sigh, a huge sigh of relief. I think the whole school did a collective sigh of relief <laughs> that no woman had to see like when you had all pimple-y things. Around. Right, right, right. Oh, you know, and God. I think the same for girls. It's like, you know, single sex female schools do a lot better because, you know, less distraction. So mm. again, like this mixed world, we've created this like deeply mixed world, but maybe it's too mixed. Maybe we need to pull back a bit, spend more time with the same sex, you know, and and then we'd also have more like enchantment 
of the other sex. You know, we wouldn't mm -hmm. be so proximate. We wouldn't be so over-familiar. Like I've tried to write in various places about how we're more like siblings, like men and women have become like brother and sister. Right. You know, and this isn't good. Yeah. I just I just interviewed someone from a cult where, where brother and sister did did do do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, not good, not good results, unfortunately. Well, no. You see, there's sort of too proximate. Yeah, and the, the DNA doesn't work. No. I, so it's um, led to a lot of infertility in the in the yeah uh, yeah no i mean that's grim you know and i think the incest taboo is like one of the oldest taboos and if not the oldest actually for a good reason mm -hmm. you know like social and biological reasons why the incest taboo is a good thing yeah do you what do you think there are examples of toxic femininity yeah i mean i said gossip and reputational damage oh, yeah. and you know i think you know women maybe I think sometimes this question of power, I think sometimes there's a way women don't want to acknowledge that they do have power mm. um, and that this is a, actually a form of power to deny that you have it. Especially to these days. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the victim mentality. I mean, we could talk about um, the kind of uh, the longhouse, the feminization of institutions. Like a lot of people have suggested that bureaucracies have become very female. Um you know, and, and that these kind of typically feminine qualities like um, concern and care and safety are actually creating huge problems in institutions. Are they biological? I just wonder, yeah. if, you know, my, my fiance, if I put like a bag on the bed, she's like, that bag's been on the floor outside. And like all that. And that's like <laughs> such a stereotype. And I, I sit there going, God, we are such a stereotype. Why, why are we a stereotype? I think there's a lot of, you know, social, cultural, personal difference between um, different men and women, right? So there's a wide range of behaviors, but look, you know, we're biologically different, like profoundly on every level, like in a cellular way, in a cosmic way, in physical, you know. And so that that is obviously going to have effects on our psychology and mm. our social behavior. So yes, I mean, I think women are less strong than men. So they're not going to use physical violence to solve their problems, which is hence the linguistic reputational damage. Mm -hmm. That's how you get rid of your rivals <laughs> yeah. or you screw people over or you, you know, you say stuff about men or, you you know, you try and destroy people's character because you're not going to have a fist fight with them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I suppose some women do engage in that sort of physical dominance and some men have that feminine uh, toxicity. That's sure, 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 sure. So I'm saying there's like a wide range. Like yeah. we all know people who don't conform to stereotypes, you know, like I say I'm quite masculine in lots of ways and the mm. way I try to problem solve and so on. I'm not very emotional. You know, but there are men and men who are very emotional. And, do you know what I mean? So yeah. of course, there's like dynamic range. Maybe you can answer me this, and because I go to the gym now, I don't really. I go and play tennis because I I'm, and I feel like I'm not a very manly man. And when I see the men in the gym and in the changing rooms, I feel like I'm a different species. And it's because they do all the snorting in the shower. <laughs> just, I don't even want to make the noises, obviously, on a podcast. But the noises. And I'm just like, I just want to enjoy a nice shampoo of my hair and relax. And I actually make a noise because they do that. And it's all the time that, what are they doing? And I start, I actually go, oh, like that. But then it just sounds like I'm doing something else in the shower. But, you know, I'm like, oh, like to show I'm disgusted by these people. And then they continue doing it. And I, yeah, so what are they doing? <laughs> um, I I don't know if I can answer precisely, but maybe you could say it's sort of territorial or like sonic God. dominance. Or like, <laughs> like they can't do this at home? Like whatever this, well, like they seem to be putting phlegm up from their throat into their nose and then expelling it. I read a brilliant definition of masculinity um, by Matt Chrisman, where he said that masculinity or being a man is like the abstract rage to protect. 
The and abstract... I said, rage to protect. What does that mean? So I suppose it's like a combination of constantly sort of being on the lookout for oh. danger and wanting to to care and but also being angry and you know like the, I don't know this kind of he put it in this very poetic way and it just seemed like a very profound insight really like this kind of combination and I often hear men speaking about this like you know going to a room and you're kind of working out the danger you're working out your relative strength mm. compared to other men and even you know not not so to dominate but just to sort of get an understanding of where strength is or power is and I think you know the ancient Greeks when they talked about masculinity it was actually about deploying judgment it's like knowing when to use your strength or right. knowing when to intervene you know it's not just being randomly violent or whatever right to go back to the alpha male thing it's actually having this discernment and judgment and also being because then you're able to sort of protect others right mm -hmm. like if you're, you're you're walking with your mother or you know your girlfriend or someone who's physically or your children physically weaker than you are and it's not always about physical strength it's also about avoiding confrontation yeah you know yeah. so so precisely like most of the time we almost all the time we want to avoid <laughs> physical confrontation. So yes. it would be about diplomacy. It would be about backing down. Potentially it would be about knowing. It's a sort of like a learning how to deal with with, with different situations. I think my, like yeah, my masculine strength is a, a surprising daintiness. I've got these, look at my little hands. See how small they are? I'm six foot three. I've got these little hands. Like and Trump. I, yeah, I've got the little Trump hands, but I'm daintier. He's not very dainty. He's got small hands, but he's not dainty. I like being dainty and I hate all the, the snorting noises. It drives me out. So that's my thing, I suppose. And it's like my dominance is me. Hey, I'm trying to be dainty over here and you're in the shower <laughs> of the gym snorting. But um, tell us where to get your book and where do you want to send people who are watching? Um, well, I think my book is mostly available in bookshops, although some <laughs> mad people try and cancel it and hide it and Sorry. not stock it. Um, but, you know, usual places. Um, the paperback has been out for a few months uh, by Penguin. Uh, I don't think it's very much money on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I read the audio book, so you can oh, hear great. me laughing my way through my own words, <laughs> uh, which is delightful, my squeaky voice. Um, Lovely voice. <laughs> it's a terrible voice. Um, yeah, and I have a Substack, but I mostly just write weird poems on there. But mm. really, the main thing is that I, I'm one of the editors for Compact Magazine, which is fantastic and people should read it. And it's very heterodox, kind of contemporary political cultural magazine. Thank you, Nina Power, and thank you to the Battle of Ideas for allowing us to have that space. I got seven interviews done in, in the end there. I mentioned some of the people like Graham Linehan, Francis Foster, Peter Boghossian, uh, uh, Leo Kurse, and James Esses. This is the other one who was fired from his law course for his uh, controversial views. So some of those have already been out. Some of those are coming up. I hope you'll stick with them. Do get What Do Men Want by Nina Power. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>